Over the past seven years, Getting Smart has been documenting the rise of artificial intelligence and its impacts on teaching, leading, and learning. We've put together a new resource combining many of our past publications, blogs, podcasts, and events, so we can better keep our finger on the pulse of the rapid advancement of this technology. Check out this new resource for a great understanding of where AI has been, how it's already impacting the classroom, and what's coming soon. We'll be updating it every couple of weeks as well, so be sure to check out the editor's note on the first page to see what new products, policies, or advancements have occurred. You can check it out at gettingsmart.com slash artificial dash intelligence, or you can find it at the link in the show notes. We hope you enjoy this episode. Ryan, why are you such a, an advocate of apprenticeships? So many reasons, Tom. Uh, first is that uh, it's really the only level playing field uh, to economic opportunity and mobility, uh, as opposed to being a tuition-based, debt-based education training pathway uh, that inherently discriminates against those that with fewer resources. An apprenticeship is, by definition, a, a job that pays a living wage uh, with structured training built in that helps you make more uh, as you uh, gain more skills over time. So unlike everything else, uh, it's, it is, a, it is truly a level playing field. doesn't matter where you come from, what background, uh, you're, 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 you're able to access, uh, able to access it. The second reason is that, uh, I talk a lot about the skills gap, uh, in America driven by digital transformation. Uh, many, if not most of the skills that are most, uh, in demand, uh, and hardest to find are actually harder to learn in a classroom. Uh, than they are by doing. And that's what apprenticeship is. Uh, it's learning by doing, uh, earning and learning, uh, learning on the job. And uh, so that's a, that's, a major, uh, that's a major benefit. And then the third, I would say, is just the, um, the failure uh, of uh, our traditional, our existing uh, higher education and workforce infrastructure to address uh, the problems um, that we're, we're seeing uh, in terms of economic opportunity and inequality. Uh, and um, uh, apprenticeship, uh, although uh, we don't have a lot of data points, but what we do know about apprenticeship uh, demonstrates that uh, it is probably the most powerful tool uh, that we have uh, to address it and, and really has. My, my last book, as you'll recall, was called Alternatives to College. Uh, well, I've decided what the alternative uh, uh, should be and needs to be, and it's, that's apprenticeship. <clears throat> You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Tom Vanderark, and I have the pleasure of being joined by Ryan Craig, a three-peat guest. Ryan, it's so good to have you on. Uh, it's wonderful to be back, Tom. Thanks very much. I think this is my, my third time, you said. so. Uh, yes. Uh, Ryan is the Managing Director of Achieve Partners. Um, Ryan and I serve on the board at uh, Mastery Transcript Consortium together. Um, Ryan uh, mentioned his book, uh, 2018 book, A New You, uh, Faster and Cheaper Alternatives to College, which was the best book on higher education uh, in the last decade. Um, Ryan, 2018, in, in part because of your book, marked a real turning point in the way America views higher education. I, I sort of think of it as the year that America called BS on higher ed and it was the beginning of the decline in enrollment when people just realized that the ROI had plummeted, that degrees were costing more and that skills requirements had changed. And I think for a lot of us, your book marks this 
turning point. And then the pandemic happened and that just accelerated all the trends that you talked about. It, it increased the um, alternatives to college. It decreased uh, college going. And so for all of those reasons, I just think your your 28 book was was super important. What? How, how do you think about it now? It's like probably six years since you started writing that book. That's right. That's right. Well, if it, on, on my uh, tombstone, it says the man who called BS on college in 2018. <laughs> I'll be, that's fine. That's fine with me. But I, I think that's actually a, a nice way to think about 20, uh, 2018. I think you're right about that. Uh, we've now seen five years of successive enrollment declines. And at that point, it was, uh, here's what we know right now, which is the emergence of all of these alternative, uh, faster and cheaper alternatives to college. So it was sort of a guided tour of this new phenomenon that we termed last mile training, uh, reflecting boot camps and income share programs and faster, cheaper uh, certificate industry recognized certifications uh, and so forth. And there's a little bit in there on apprenticeship, um, but it's certainly not uh, not not the dominant not the dominant piece. And what 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 we've learned in the uh, in the interim is that uh, these pathways actually uh, don't scale uh, uh, particularly well unless there's some sort of guaranteed employment outcome. Uh, at the end. Uh, and uh, that's hard to do from what I would call an education up standpoint, meaning starting as an education training program, uh, particularly uh, from the standpoint of an accredited college or university, because you're not an employer uh, and uh, your, con- your, your, your point of intersection with employers is often tenuous, uh, meaning employers aren't sort of set up to have sort of strong relationships with colleges or university. You, they interact through, through HR. The college interacts through career services. They're probably the two weakest points of their respective uh, organizations. Uh, and uh, the result is that uh, you don't have a strong uh, connection. There's no uh, guaranteed employment outcome. And that's true of coding boot camps and others, uh, other education up models as well. Uh, so it was actually in uh, 2017, 20, right around when I was uh, writing this book, that we made our uh, investment in uh, a company called Reviture, where uh, we invested in a software developer staffing firm uh, that had nothing to do with education and training. And we built last mile training into it and built rather than an education up model, what we call an employer down model. Uh, and without, uh, you know, knowing it or calling it uh, apprenticeship, that's what it was, uh, because we were hiring, training and deploying uh, a brand new uh, software developers. And we were hiring them before they had any software development skills uh, or experience uh, and then training them and then deploying them to clients. Let me just say it, that I, I think that for me, at least marks the beginning of what we now call the higher train deploy sector, which which you were instrumental in 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 standing up, um, it, it today is a thriving sector, uh, that typically picks up it's, it's post baccalaureate. You're picking up college graduates typically and giving them team and tech skills and deploying them, uh, in, in the tech sector and beyond. Is that, is that the, has that been the main work of Achieve Partners? Yeah, that's right. Uh, what we're doing now is we're building revitures across uh, dozens of uh, sectors where there's a talent gap. So we've done it in addition to software development. We've done it in data. We've done it in cybersecurity, uh, healthcare, IT. Yeah, um, but we actually also have a healthcare. We have a company called Row Health, which is doing it with um, uh, behavioral healthcare uh, professionals and, um, uh, and nurses. Uh, so 
uh, we have Salesforce and Workday. So we, we've, we, 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 we've, uh, we've done this a lot. It, it's a, it's a model that works extraordinarily well. Uh, and, um, we just wish there were thousands of these companies out there because, uh, every one that we build, uh, is hiring and training, deploying and changing hundreds and hopefully thousands of, uh, of lives building, uh, apprenticeship infrastructure, uh, that, uh, we, we desperately need. And I guess in many respects, you're doing what higher education should be doing, you, right? You, th- this is, this, you're, you're building the, the knowledge and skills that people ought to be getting the degree they, they just paid for. Is that true? Well, I would say that, um, you know, look, all of our companies have partnerships with, uh, we just had our, our Workday company, Helios, just announced a partnership with ASU. And what I say to all these university partners is, look, you've done the hard work. You've done the heavy lifting of uh, helping develop these cognitive skills, communication skills, problem solving skills. Uh, we're just doing the last mile, uh, which, uh, you know. <laughs> That's a diplomatic answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but look, the, the last mile is is important. Um, and uh, without it, uh, they, they, uh, they, they, they wouldn't be getting these jobs uh, and the careers would not be would not be launched. So uh, it really takes both. Um, uh, but yeah, I, 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 I think that, uh, you know, the question is, uh, you know, could colleges potentially incorporate this? Uh, I think it's, I think it's hard, uh, because it really, you really do need to have strong relationships with, uh, employers when the companies we're buying, uh, at achieve are companies that have been operating in these sectors for, years, in some cases, decades, uh, and have real expertise. So when we wanted to do Workday, we bought one of the 50 Workday partners uh, out there. Um, so they, they, they know Workday and Workday knows them. And so now they're, they're the only one in the Workday ecosystem waving the talent flag uh, that has a, a lot of benefits uh, for the ecosystem and for the company. Ryan, the last time we talked, I asked you if this higher trained employee sector would move down and start picking up people out of AA programs. I know Infosys has has done some of that. Is is that starting to happen? Uh, We are working hard at it. Uh, We are trying to get off the ground a digital marketing uh, platform that would not only be AA, might even be out of high school. Um, directly. Or, or out of a P-TECH, right? Which might be a high yep. school with a lot of dual credit. 100%. Uh, we, um, the, the problem, quite honestly, is that uh, every time we launch a new program and a new cohort, we have hundreds of applicants for every open seat. And so while we're trying to, uh, so it's extraordinarily selective. And so we select on cognitive skills, we select on diversity. Most cohorts are uh, majority underrepresented minority. Uh, and we select on technical aptitude, but not specific technical skills or business knowledge or experience. None of our programs uh, list a degree requirement, obviously. But uh, when you have 200 applicants for every seat, uh, it's going to be hard for a high school grad to compete against a college grad. So that's our challenge. All right. Since we talked last, um, you you co-founded uh, and launched Apprenticeships for America, a new nonprofit. Uh, I want to talk about that. And you you finished a, a new book called Apprentice Nation, how the earn and learn alternative to higher education will create stronger and fairer America. That comes out later this year. So 
at the outset, you, you talked about apprenticeships, but uh, I'd love to know more. Why this new nonprofit? And then, uh, and then tell us more about the guts of this new book. Well, uh, maybe I should start with the book uh, because it's that narrative that sort of leads to why this nonprofit is so important. Uh, so if apprenticeship is, um, uh, is, is important, uh, why don't we have more of it <laughs> as a country? And in fact, uh, as a country, uh, we, are, we have about 500,000 apprentices, civilian outside the military uh, uh, right now. Um, that may sound like a lot, uh, but as a percentage of the workforce, it's less than we had uh, after work, World War II. And we are uh, one-eighth of where Canada, the UK, and Australia are, and we're one-fifteenth of where, of, of where Germany, um, uh, Austria, and Switzerland are. Right, and, and higher ed enrolling classes are about 5 million, and, and so that cohort is 5 or 6 million young people, and there's 5,000 apprenticeships. So that puts it into perspective. Right. Yeah. It's a, I mean, and, and, and the, and, and, you know, one reason why <laughs> you put your, 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 your finger on the button there is um, funding. So if you look at total taxpayer support of uh, accredited college and universities and compared it to taxpayer support of apprenticeship, uh, it's over, the ratio is over a thousand to one. And if you compare a uh, college student to uh, an apprentice, and you were and you were to ask, uh, well, how much taxpayer support, how much public support is, are they receiving? For every dollar of public support to the college student, uh, the apprentice is receiving about two and a half cents. So I, I don't know whether the ratio should be ten to one for college to apprenticeship or five to one, but it certainly shouldn't be. A thousand to one, uh, in terms of sheer amount of funding, or on a on a on an individual basis, shouldn't be fifty to one. That's not right. Uh, that's not fair, particularly where apprenticeship is, as I said at the top, uh, the only level playing field um, uh, that doesn't discriminate against those that without means and who don't want to take on. Is it is it a twenty percent solution? Could it could it serve twenty percent of job pathways? And what and what do you think it is in Germany and Switzerland that are Sort of gold standard today. Yeah, uh, in those countries, it's closer to thirty, forty percent. Um, and uh, I think we have the our goal at AFA is we want to get it from five hundred thousand to five million. Uh, so uh, we we want it to be a and 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 that would be a you know kind of thirty, forty percent solution for the for the country. Um, and the way we get it there is that you know the real problem is that. Uh, for that 500,000 today, 70 to 80% of it is in the construction trades. So very, very few uh, are in the sectors that most students who are looking at college are interested in. So financial services, healthcare, tech, obviously. Uh, and so the question is, well, how do we, what are other countries doing? Because in the UK, very common, right? If you want to be an accountant, you want to be a software developer, very common to do an apprenticeship now. Um uh, we don't we don't have that uh, here, uh, and the reason uh, we don't we don't have that is that uh, the, the UK, Australia, and Canada, and other countries recognized long ago that the key to expanding apprenticeship is this something called the apprenticeship intermediary, 
So an immediate an intermediary is not the end employer, right? It's not the uh, Bank of America uh, that's going to ultimately be employing uh, this talent. Uh, it's an intermediary organization that does the heavy lifting of setting up and running the apprenticeship program. Like CareerWise in Colorado. Exactly. CareerWise in Colorado, Apprenti Year Up is an apprenticeship intermediary, Multiverse, Reviture. So in the UK, uh, you have uh, an organization called the AELP, the Association of Experiential Learning Providers. It's an industry association of 1,200 apprenticeship intermediaries. So given the size of our economy, we ought to have 7,000. AFA, we scoured the country for every apprenticeship intermediary out there. We have 200. (laughs) So we are underbuilt. And the reason for that is that we're not funding it. So I mentioned that in terms of sheer uh, amount of funding, we're, 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 we're not nearly spending uh, what, we, uh, what we should be spending uh, on apprenticeship. And the money we are spending, we're spending completely wrong. Uh, so whereas other countries have formula-based funding where if you're an apprenticeship intermediary, you get paid uh, for uh, your public, public, public support for the cost of the formal training called RTI, Related Technical Instructions. That's the classroom training component of an apprenticeship program that's paid for in every other country. You go through, in the, in the US, you jump through all the hoops, you register, and believe me, there are a lot of hoops. Uh, there is no funding associated with that. You can't take a Pell Grant to, to pay for uh, classroom training. No, no, not currently. So um, the, the Department of Labor has increased apprenticeship funding uh, over the past seven years pretty substantially. But uh, what they're doing is um, they are uh, giving grants uh, to organizations that uh, apply uh, that claim that they're going to expand apprenticeships. For the most part, these are uh, workforce boards, foundations, uh, and community colleges, organizations that are good at applying for Department of Labor grants. And they're developing uh, curriculum on paper, uh, and uh, they are registering the program and then they're sitting on their hands, waiting for an employer to come along and say, I'd like to use your curriculum. Well, that's not how apprenticeships work, right? Apprenticeships work when you have sort of a general contractor uh, that is essentially an apprenticeship intermediary that is doing the work, taking responsibility for setting up and running this program and goes and knocks on doors of thousands of employers and says, would you like us to set up and run an apprenticeship program for you? So that's what happens in the UK. And in the UK, you won't find a large or mid-sized employer it hasn't been approached a dozen times by apprenticeship intermediaries offering to set up and run apprenticeship programs for them. So that's how this works. Um, we don't have those intermediaries yet in this country because we haven't incentivized the creation of a robust ecosystem of them. Uh, we certainly have the potential. Uh, we have uh, thousands of staffing companies, uh, tens of thousands of business services companies, uh, thousands of nonprofits that could be apprenticeship intermediaries. In the past three weeks, I've been approached by four different uh, uh, cities or regions uh, of the country asking, how do we set up an, uh, our own intermediary to go uh, to do this? Um, so, uh, but the problem is there, there is no funding until, I just want to mention, uh, uh, California, uh, on the back of work that uh, Apprenticeships for America uh, has done, uh, at, uh, at the end of last year, set up what's called apprenticeship innovation funding, uh, which is the first formula-based funding for apprenticeships. So now if you're an apprenticeship, if you're running an apprenticeship program in California, every apprentice you hire, hire and train, uh, you can essentially 
submit uh, to the state for a $3,500 payment, uh, automatic formula based. Uh, so I think our, you know, the, the, the broader point is uh, we have formula based funding in higher ed funding flows with the student. We ought to have it in, uh, in, in apprenticeship too, rather than doing what the DOL has been doing, which is trying to pick winners. Uh, and when they're, and, 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 and these grants are going to, as I said, uh, organizations that are low intervention intermediaries. Uh, they don't do very much of the heavy lifting. They're not successful in creating apprenticeships. They don't actually hire the apprentices themselves, like many of the high intervention intermediaries do. And as a result, they're creating what I call paper apprenticeships, meaning they exist on paper, but they're not actually hiring. Just this, you'll find this interesting. Um, for the book, I actually have a directory of all the apprenticeship programs in the U.S. I could find outside the construction trades that are actually hiring. So while the U.S. Department of Labor RAPIDS database, the database of registered apprenticeship programs, there are 5,000, over 5,000 apprenticeship programs uh, in the RAPIDS database outside of the construction trades. Of those 5,000, only 200 of them, approximately 200 of them, are actually real apprenticeship programs that are hiring. Ryan, will um, the, the apprenticeship landscape that you're trying to create, um, will most young people that move into an apprenticeship, will the apprentice, um, the apprenticeship take place uh, at an employer or at an intermediary, or will it end up being a mixed landscape? And, and where and how do companies like Skillstorm, one of your first investments in the rare train deploy, are they an example of one form of a new next-gen intermediary? Yeah, it, it shouldn't matter for the apprentice, right? All the apprentice knows is they're being hired, uh, and they're being paid from day one, and they're being trained as a pathway. So whether the employer of record is uh, Skillstorm uh, or Multiverse, uh, or whether it's Bank of America, shouldn't matter for them. What The, the, the way it's going to work is they're going to be doing work for Bank of America, uh, and then ultimately will be going to work uh, at Bank of America uh, in time. So some models uh, like uh, Skillstorm are higher trained deploy, where Skillstorm remains the employer of record for up to two years. Multiverse, uh, which is our other another company of ours, uh, very fast growing, started in the UK, uh, founded by Tony Blair's son, Ewan Blair. Uh, they're an apprenticeship service provider. Uh, so they asked Bank of America to uh, act as the employer from day one, but they do everything else, right? Still high intervention intermediary. They're doing the heavy lifting. So the point is that, look, apprenticeships are jobs. And the, the real question is, apprenticeships are created when someone uh, is willing to hire uh, an untrained, unproductive resource and invest in them, right? So the question is, who is going to do that? And the answer is, well, you can have an intermediary that does hire, train, deploy, where they do everything, and then sells the talent uh, uh, at, at, at the end of the process, and that's how they recoup their investment. That's how all our companies uh, operate. Uh, or uh, you could have a company that does all the heavy lifting. We do everything, uh, but all we're asking you to do, Bank of America, is hire this resource and uh, pay them. And uh, uh, but otherwise, we're we're managing that apprenticeship program for you. It's kind of six of one, half dozen of the other. One is slightly more high intervention than the others, but both are infinitely uh, more uh, uh, infinitely preferable uh, to employers than, say, a community college. Uh, where all they do is uh, develop uh, RTI curriculum and then sit on their hands and wait for the employer to come along and say, we'd like to use that in our apprenticeship program and then leaving uh, employers to do uh, all the rest of the work uh, around setting up and running the program. 
Apprenticeships should always be paid. Apprenticeships are paid by definition. Apprenticeships are jobs. So that's the, that that that's the, at the top. I was saying, unlike every other education and training pathway, it's not a boot camp. It's not a training program. It's a job. It's a job first and foremost with training built in. And so that's why apprenticeships are different. And that's why, uh, you know, I've come to the conclusion that uh, of all the options I listed in a new you, uh, apprenticeship is uh, by far the preferable one and will become the dominant one. Uh, once we build uh, out the apprenticeship infrastructure that we need. And in some cases, uh, do apprentices receive training on the job? And in other cases, are there different versions of the earn and learn ladder? In some cases, are they going to, uh, through formal education program while they're working? Are there different flavors of this, of, of how working and learning fit together? Yeah, so an apprenticeship program has two forms of training. With them, there's the formal classroom training called RTI, Related Technical Instruction, and that could be done uh, at you know at the work site, could be done remotely, could be done at a community college, right? Um, and then there's the on-the-job OJT uh, training as well that the employer is responsible uh, for. So they're both kinds, but in the meantime, it's not just learning. They're on the job, they're working, they're adding value uh, to their employer uh, from the from the moment that they sit on the work, and so. You know, the, the, um, if you think about the construction trades, it was, you know, apprenticeships work really well in the construction trades because on day one, an untrained worker can still help, right? Uh, he or she can hold tools. They can assist, right? Uh, they're, they're, that makes sense. Much harder to do in cybersecurity, right? What do you, you know, you're not going to put someone who's untrained uh, on the floor in front of a terminal as a tier one analyst. They're not going to be helpful, or adding value at that point. So there's more upfront training that's required um, in these digital uh, apprenticeships, but that's what the models that we're building do. All right, Ryan, let's shift gears and I'd love to have you explain what the heck is happening. (laughs) It feels like we're living through a a Cambrian explosion. Um, Unlike anything else, as far as I can tell in, in human history where this AI, specifically generative AI, has just exploded in in the last um, six months. What's your take on how that is and will change last mile training? Yeah, I mean, look, we think it's going to be have a dramatic change uh, on uh, entry level jobs, right? Everyone starts their career with some good entry level job, right? What's your first job? whether out of high school, out of an AA program, out of a degree program, apprenticeship, you start somewhere. And so in our view, AI is, um, it's interesting. You know, I've talked a lot about the skills gap and the digital skills gap created by digital transformation, right? All of these these new digital skills and platform skills that your employers expect you to have. And if you don't have, not only won't you be considered, you probably won't even be seen by the applicant tracking system. Uh, for the for the position, so in my view, uh, generative AI is likely to shrink that skills gap, right? Because all of these all of these platforms are going to have natural language uh, interfaces where uh, you don't even if you've never seen the platform before, you probably will be able to figure out how to get the uh, get, get the function or outcome you're looking uh, uh, for from the system without having the specific technical skills uh, for it. So. Uh, I'm not saying that you won't need any technical skills, but I think it narrows it narrows that skills gap. 
So I heard a study from OpenAI and Penn that said they were looking at call centers and stuff, and they said using a, this Gen AI platform, it could help the least skilled workers be more effective. So that that would be an example of Gen AI from a skills gap standpoint. Yeah, I think it narrows the skills gap for sure. But then I heard, I heard right, I heard these commentators then go, "Oh, it's going to solve the middle class inequality problem." And I thought, "Ooh, I think, I think they just spun wildly out of control." Right, you you didn't share that view. No, no, because uh, the skills gap is actually probably the lesser part of the problem. Uh, the bigger part of the problem is what we call the experience gap, which is uh, not 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 just a function of what what you know, but demonstrated experience and experience in the sector on the job. And the and the real problem is that uh, so you know let's say that you you know you go to work in finance, right? And Bloomberg has already launched their large language model, Bloomberg GPT. And so um, you've got this incredibly powerful tool uh, at your, but if you've never worked uh, in banking before, how the hell are you going to know how to use a Bloomberg GPT? Right. Just think of the prompt engineering problem. You, you have no idea what, what questions to ask. You don't understand the answers you're getting back. The same is true in healthcare, right? In healthcare, you, you're going to have to know how to use MedPalm 2, Google's new 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 healthcare. Yeah, and employers are going to know all employers are going to know all of that, and so they're going to say, uh, "All right, uh, so maybe now in the job description for these entry level jobs, maybe you don't need to know the platform, but you need to have had, you know, the equivalent of you know two years experience in the field already." And so, in that respect, I think that most of most entry level jobs will become uh, like cybersecurity jobs. Today, where if you look at cybersecurity jobs, entry-level jobs, tier one analyst jobs, you look at the um, the job descriptions, the skill and um, uh, the, the skill uh, and, uh, and certification and experience requirements listed. Basically, you need two to three years of experience in the field to be considered for one of those jobs. So it turns entry-level jobs into a bit of, a bit of an oxymoron. So my conclusion is that. Uh, uh, generative AI will narrow the skills gap, but dramatically widen uh, the experience gap such that uh, by the time you finish your quote unquote educational pathway, whatever that is, be that uh, high school, college, community college, apprenticeship, you will need to have had the equivalent of a year or two or three of relevant experience in that industry and in that field. And so that to me, means that there's going to be a huge premium placed on uh, what, what, I, what I'm calling a sort of a triad, a new triad, uh, which is the combination of uh, work-integrated learning, things like Ripen, uh, for example, uh, internships, which obviously is not a, not a new thing, been around for a long time, but it, there's going to be a, a, a higher premium on internships, and then obviously apprenticeship, uh, which you know to me is still sort of the, the apex of that because... Uh, nobody can question with a print. Like you've been, you've had that job. <laughs> you've been working. That is a full-time job. You have been working internships. No work integrated learning. No, but apprenticeships. Yes. But all three of them are going to be uh, instrumental uh, in closing that experience gap. So the likelihood that someone's going to come out of an educational pathway and get a good entry-level job without having had uh, work integrated learning internship or apprenticeship, like, yeah, maybe out of uh, the super elite schools, um, uh, yes, but uh, out of uh, your, your typical uh, uh, college or university, no. 
that's not going to happen anymore. And so it'll be incumbent on those schools to integrate that triad. So uh, implications for um, high school, we, we um, at Getting Smart spent a lot of time focusing on high schools. It, it sounds like the implications for high schools are a lot like um, the Real World Learning Initiative in Kansas City that's where you have 85 high schools working together to make sure every kid has an internship, does a client-connected project, uh, has a shot at uh, an entrepreneurial experience. It sounds like that, you'd agree that that uh, every high school student has to have those kind of experiences. Is that 100%. Yeah, they're ahead of the game, but that's what every, every district uh, is going to have to do um, if they care about employment outcomes for their graduates. And then both high schools, two degree and four degree programs will need to incorporate work-based learning and internships and connect to apprenticeships as, as those emerge, right? Yes. What, what's the re em, employer's responsibility? Well, uh, look, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly Hobbesian on uh, employers. I, I, I don't think employers are going to go out of their way uh, to solve this. Employers are going to wait for that perfect trained talent to show up. And if they don't see it, they won't hire and they'll complain about it. <laughs> they'll have open positions. So um, that's why the role of the intermediary is so key. And I've talked about apprenticeship intermediaries. I think there'll be internship intermediaries. There'll be uh, work integrated learning intermediaries like Ripen, uh, for example. Uh, so all of these things are going to require intermediaries to bridge that gap because employers aren't going to reach over across the gap uh, and make the extra effort uh, for, uh, to connect with high schools and connect with colleges. Won't happen. So it sounds like pathways are more important than ever. Uh, it sounds like we have to start early with career exploration, vocational identity development, so that young people uh, are making better earlier choices. Does that sound right? 100%. Yeah. And I did talk about that in my last book, but I don't think I was as, as clear about it as I am now. Apprenticeships, it feels like these pathways, particularly if they extend you know, even beyond um, a baccalaureate would reduce transferability. I think as Americans, we sort of fancy the ability to go to college and mess around and try this and that and do three minors and uh, be able to change your mind six times. It, it feels like this might reduce transferability. That's probably a good thing and a bad thing. I, no, I yeah, I think that's a, that's a fair critique. And actually I talk about that in the book. And I say that, you know, our, what we know from, from Europe uh, is that uh, those who pursue apprenticeship uh, and end up in a different field, the vast majority end up in a related field where they're leveraging uh, a lot of the skills they learned in their apprenticeship. So the research on that is pretty, uh, pretty clear. Uh, so I'm, I'm not overly concerned about, uh, about, about specialization. And I guess the, 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 the other thing I would say is, um, what's the worst thing that could happen, right? The worst thing you could ha that could happen is uh, you've had this job for a couple of years, you've made money and you decide you want a, you want a career change. Right. No, and it's, it's very different than today where we've been, and I, I'm guilty as charged, push kids to college. Uh, you know, half of them don't finish a degree and we've got this American tragedy of debt without a uh, degree, right? That's the new worst case scenario. And 
And the downside to an apprenticeship is you're gainfully employed uh, and have a lot of employable skills. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and I want to make I want to make one more point, which is I think that many of the problems that we have uh, in higher education uh, can be traced back to uh, what I'm calling uh, asymmetric information, meaning that at the point uh, a student and their family decide to uh, apply to and then matriculate uh, at a uh, at, at a college or university, uh, they have very little information about what someone with their background and profile uh, is likely to achieve out of that program relative to the school, which either does know very well or ought to know uh, very well. But it's, uh, it's, it's the difference between the one-time buyer and, uh, and the, the repeat seller, right? Uh, you have someone selling this over and over and over again every year, but you're only buying it once. Uh, and so it's kind of, I've, I've equated to like a used car, uh, dealer, <laughs> you know, they've, they know exactly what's up. You, you really don't know, uh, what's up. And, and, and I think that by shifting from, uh, a paradigm of high school to college to work, which is the only pathway we have today to one where, which goes high school to work, then to college or some other post-secondary pathway, you're going to have millions of people in a better position in terms of their information, right? They're going to work for a few years. They're going to have more information about their own interests and skills. They're going to certainly be better situated to ask questions uh, about uh, what the likely return on, uh, on, on investment is. And I, and, and I say that, um, you know, we don't, we don't really uh, have a problem with master's degrees, right? Those who've completed a bachelor's degree and that are making a decision on master's degree, you don't hear, you know, a lot of, oh, you know, all, all these, you know, the, the terrible outcomes of math, like there are, right? There are bad outcomes from master's degrees, but the people who are making those decisions, if they're making bad decisions, they've worked, they have had, in, they have income, they've, they've had more information, they're, they're less likely to make a terrible decision about it. So I, I would like to see, I think that part of another, re, you know, back to your question at the top, why apprenticeship? Apprenticeship is a really good way to help uh, mitigate that problem of asymmetric information. We've been talking to Ryan Craig. He's the managing partner at Achieve Partners and um, co recent co-founder of Apprenticeships for America. If people want to learn more about that, can they go? Where, where do they find out more? Apprenticeshipsforamerica.org. Yeah, please. Check that out. Ryan's new book called Apprentice Nation um, comes out this fall. Order it as soon as you can. Uh, Ryan, I, I just, I really appreciate the journey that you've been on. You're just making a, I think a really important contribution. I, I love how you're combining advocacy and investing to really help this country think differently about pathways to gainful employment. So thank you. Thanks, Tom. Um, thanks to uh, our producer, Mason Pasha, and help this week from Ashley Rannon and the whole Getting Smart team. Until next week, keep learning, keep leading, and keep innovating for equity. See you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, 
mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.